happened that in the midst of disputations attendant upon the London winter, there appeared at various parties of the leaders a ton of noblemen, who, more remarkable for his singularities than his rank, he gazed upon the mirth around him, as if he could not participate therein. Apparently the light laughter of the fair only attracted his attention, that he might by a look quell it, and throw fear into those breasts where flawlessness reigned. Those who felt his sensation of awe could not explain whence it rose. Arose such a tribulation to the dead grey eye, which, fixing upon the object's face, did not seem to penetrate. At one glance to pierce through to the inward workings of the heart, but fell upon the cheek with a laden ray that weighed upon the skin, it could not pass. His peculiarities caused him to be invited to every house. All wished him to see him. Those who had been accustomed to violent incitement now felt the weight of new. They were pleased of having something in their presence capable of engaging their attention. In spite of the deadly hue of his face, which never gained a warmer tint, neither from the blush of modesty or from the strong emotion of passion. Though its form and outline were beautiful, many of the female hunters, after notoriety, attempted to win his attentions and gain, alas, some marks of what might term affection. Lady Mercer, who had been the mockery of every monster, soon in drawing room since her marriage, threw herself in his way, all but put on the dress of a Montgomery bank to attract his no- no- notice, though in vain. When she stood before him, through his eyes were apparently fixed upon hers, still it seemed as if they were unperceived, even an appalled imprudence was baffled. He left the field, but through the covenant address could not influence even the guidance of his eyes. It was not that the female sacred was indifferent to him, yet such was the apparent caution in which he spoke to the virtuous wife and innocent daughter. A few knew he ever addressed himself to females. He had, however, the reputation of a winning tongue, and whether it was that that it even overcame the dread of his singular character, or they moved by his apparent hatred of voice, he was as often among their females. As females who formed a boast of their sex from their domestic virtues, as among those who sullied it by their vices. But at the same time there came to London a young gentleman of the name of Aubrey. He was an orphan, left with an only sister, in possession of great wealth by parents who died while he was yet in childhood. Left also to himself by guardians who thought it was their duty merely to take care of his fortune. While they relished a more important charge of his mind to the care of Mercy's subordinates, he cultivated more his imagination than his judgment. He had hence that high romantic feeling of honour and candour which daily ruins so many millers and princesses. He believed all to sympathise with virtue, and thought that vice was thrown in by providence, merely for the pressure of fate. The scene, as we see in romances, he thought the misery of cottage merely consisted in the vesting of clothes which were as warm, but were better adapted to the painter's eye 
by the irregular folds and various coloured patches. He thought in fine that the dreams of poets were realities of life. He was handsome, frank and rich for those reasons upon his entering into the gay circles. Many others surrounded him, striving which could describe, should describe with least truth their languishing or romping favourites, but daughters at the same time, by their brightening countenances, when he approached, and by his sparkling eyes he opened his lips, soon lent him to false notions of his talents and his merit. Attached as he was to the romance of his solitary hours, he was startled at finding, except in the tallow and candle waxes, a flickered, not even that from the presence of a ghost, but from want of snuffing. There was no foundation in real life for any of the, that countries of pleasing pictures and descriptions that contained in those volumes for which he formed his study. Buying, however, some compensation in his gratitude, pride, vanity, he is about to relinquish his dreams when the extraordinary being he we have been above described crossed him in his career. We watched him. We watched him, and very possibly of forming an idea, a character man entirely absorbed in himself. He gave few other signs of his observation. External objects, when a tacit or acid, although their existence implied by the avoidance of their contact, allowing his imagination to picture everything that flattered his prosperity to exaggerate ideas, he soon formed this object into the hero of romance. Determined to observe the offspring of his fancy, rather than one person, rather than the person before him, he became acquainted with him, paid him attentions, and so far advanced upon his notice that his presence was always recognised. He gradually learned that Lord Ruffin's affairs were embarrassed, and soon found from the notes of preparation in the street he was about to tra- to travel, serious of gaining some. Information respecting a singular character, whom till now had only whetted his curiosity, he hinted to his guardians it was time for him to perform the tour, which was which for many durations been thought necessary to enable the young to take some rapid steps in the career of vice towards putting themselves upon the reality with the aged, not allowing them to appear as if fallen from the skies, whatever scandalous. Antiquities were mentioned as the subject's presentry or praise according to the real skill school. Soon in incurring them on, he consented, and Aubrey immediately mentioning these attentions to Lord Raffaben was surprised to receive from him a proposal to join him, flattered by such a mark of esteem from him, who apparently had nothing in common with another man. He gradually accepted it, and in a few days they had passed the circling waters. Hitherto, Aubrey had no opportunity of studying Lord Raffin's character, and now he found that though many more of his actions were exposed to his view, the results often different, offered different conclusions from the apparent motives of his conduct. His companion was profuse in his liberty, the idol, the vagabond, and the beggar. Received from his hand more than enough to relieve their immediate wants, but Aubrey could not avoid remarking that it was not upon the virtuous 
reduced to indulgence by the most fortune's attendants, even upon virtue that he bestowed his arms. These were sent from the door from Harley's suppressed ears, but when the prefectlant came to ask something, not to relieve his wants, but to allow him to wallow in his lust, or to sink him still deeper in his secretary, he was sent away with rich territory. This, however, attributed by him to the greater potency of the vicious which generally prevails over the retiring bachelors of the virtuous indignant. There was one circumstance about the charity of his lordship which is still more pressed upon his mind. All those upon whom bestowed eventually found that there were there was a curse upon it, for all either led to the scaffold or sunk to the lowest and most abject misery at Brussels and other towns through which they passed, or we were surprised at the apparent eagerness which his companions sought for the centres of all fashionable vice, where he entered all the spirit of the furlough table he betted and always gambled with success, except when he known sharper was his antagonist. He lost even more than he gained, but he was always with the same unchanging face, which he generally watched the society around. He was not, however, so when he encountered the rash, youthful novice, or the luckless father of a numerous family. Then his lucky wish seemed fortunate law. His apparent abstractness of the mind was laid aside. His eyes sparkled with more fire than that of a cat while dangling with a half-deafened mouse. In every town he left a formerly abundant youth, torn from the circle he adored, cursing the solitude of the dungeon, a fate had drawn him within the reach of his brain. Well, many a father sat frantic, amidst the speaking looks of mute hungry children, about the single farthing of his late immense wealth, within to buy even significant to satisfy their present craving. Yet he took no money from the gambling table, but immediate loss to the ruiner of many. Alas, greater he had just snatched from the compulsive grasp of the innocent. This might be the result of a certain degree of knowledge, which not have a capable of combating a cunning of or the more experienced. Or we often wished to represent this to his friend, and begged him to resign that charity and pleasure would provide the ruin of all, and did not attend to his own profit, but he delayed it, for every day he hoped that his friend would give him for some opportunity of speaking frankly and opening to him. However, his never, this never occurred. Lord of Neverland, in his carriage, amidst the various wild and rich screens of nature, was always the same. His eyes spoke less than his lip, and though Audrey was near the object, object of his curiosity, he attained so no greater gratification amid the consent excitement of the vainly wishing to break that mystery which his exalted imagination began to assume the appearance of something supernatural. He soon arrived at Rome, and already for time lost sight of his companion. He left him in daily attendance upon the morning circle of an Italian countess. Whilst he was went in search of the memorials of another almost deserted city, Whilst he was thus engaged, letters arrived from England, which he opened with eager impatience. The first was from his sister, breathing nothing but affection. The others were from his guardians. A letter astonished him. 
if it had before entered into his imagination, there was an evil power present in his companion. He seemed to give them a significant reason for the belief. His guardians insisted upon his immediately leaving his friend, and noticed his character was dreadfully vicious. For that possession of irresistible powers of seduction rendered his luxurious habits more dangerous to society. He had been discovered that his contempt the adulteress had not originated in hatred of her character, that he had acquired and enhanced his gratification, that his victim, the partner of guilt, should be hurled from the pinnacle of unsullied virtue down to the lowest abyss of degradation. In fine, that all those females whom he sought, apparently on her account of virtue, had since his departure thrown, even the mask aside, had not scrupled to expose the whole deformity their vices to the public gaze, Owen determined upon leaving one whose character was not yet shown a single bright point on which to rest the eye, resolved to invent some plausible pretext of abandoning him altogether, proposing in the meanwhile to watch him more closely and let no sight of circumstances pass by unnoticed. He entered into the same circle and soon perceived that his lordship was endowing to work upon the experience experience of the daughter of the lady whose house he chiefly frequented. In Italy it's seldom that unmarried female was met with in society. He was therefore obliged to carry on his plans in secret, over his eye followed him in all their windings and soon discovered that a cessation had been appointed which most likely ended in the ruin of an innocent, though faultless girl. Losing our time he entered the apartment of Lord Referring and abruptly asking him his attentions with respect to the lady, informing him at the same time he was aware of his being about to meet him the very night. Lady Rathman answered that his attentions were such as he proposed, or would have upon such occasion, upon being pressed, whether he intended to marry her, merely laughed. Aubrey retired, immediately writing a note to say that from the moment he must decline overcrying his lordship to the manner of the proposed tour. He ordered his servant to seek other apartments, and calling upon the mother of the lady, informed her all of all he knew, not only with regard to her daughter, but also concerning the character of his lordship. The assassination was prevented. Assassination was prevented. Lord Reverend, the next day, merely sent his servant to notify his compelled consent. A separation, but does not hint any suspicion of his plans being foiled by Aubrey's interposition. Having left Rome, Aubrey directed his step towards Greece, and crossing the Valencia, soon found himself at Athens. He then fixed his residence in the house of a Greek, and soon occupied himself in tracing the faded records of ancient glory upon monuments that apparently ashamed of chronicling the deeds of free men only before slaves had hidden themselves beneath a sheltering soil of many coloured lichen. Under the same roof as in myself himself, is it a being so beautiful and delicate you might have formed a model of a painter wishing to betray on canvas the promised hope of the faithful and motorites to paradise, say that her eyes spoke to much mind. For one to think she would belong to those 
had no souls. If you danced upon the plain, or tripped along the mountainside, one would have thought the gazelle a poor type of her beauties. For who would have the stranger eye, apparently the eye of an analytic nature, for that sleepy, luxurious look the animal suited but to the taste of a, a cure? A lightest slept of fate, often accompanied Alpbury in his search for those antiquities, and often would the unconscious girl engage in pursuit of Cashmere's butterfly, show the whole beauty of her form, floating as if upon the wind to the eager gaze of him, who forgot the letters he had just deciphered upon an almost in-face tablet in the computation of her cipher like figure upon often her tresses falling as she flirted around exhibited in the sun ray such delicately brilliant and swift in fading hues he might well excuse the forgetfulness his antiquity who let escape from his mind the very object which before thought of very vital importance to the proper interpretation a passage in Paleusenius. But why attempt to describe charms which all feel, but none can appreciate? It was innocence, youth, and beauty, unaffected by crowded growing rooms and stifling balls. Whilst he drew there remains of which he wished to preserve a memorial of his future hours, she would stand by and watch the magic effects of his pencil. In tracing the scenes of her native place, she would then describe him. The circling dance upon the open plain were paint to him in all the glowing colours of youthful memory. The marriage romp she remembered viewing in her infancy, and then returning to the subjects, apparently made a great impression upon her mind, and tell him all the supernatural tales of her nurse, her eagerness and apparent belief of what she narrated, excited the interest even Aubrey, often as she tell him this tale of the living vampire. But past years amidst his friends and dearest ties, forced every year by feeding upon the life of loving female, to prolong his existence for the ensuing months, his blood would run cold while he attempted to laugh her out of such idle and horrible fantasies. But in the fell cited to him the names of all men, whom at least last detected some living among themselves, others several with their near relatives, and children had found marked with a stamp the fiend's appetite. But when she found him so incredulous, she begged of him to believe her, for he had been remarked that those who dared to question his existence always had some proof given, or obliged them with grief and heartbreaking to confess it was true. She detailed to him the traditional appearance of these monsters. His horror was increased by the hearing a pretty accurate description. Lord Reverend, he himself still persisted in pursuing her, like there may be no truth in her fears, though at some time he wondered how many coincidences which all tended to recite a belief in the supernatural power of Lord Reverend. Aubrey began to touch himself more and more to the even if free. Her innocence so contrasted with all the affected vices of the women among them, whom he had sought in vision or romance, won his heart, while he recalled the idea of the young men of English habits, marrying an uneducated, uneducated Greek girl, 
Sylvia found herself more and more attached to the almost very form before him. He would tear himself at times from her, forming a plan from some inquisitive research. He would depart, determined not to return till his object was attained. For he always found it impossible to fix his attention upon the ruins around him. Whilst in his mind he retained an image that seemed alone the rightful possessor of his faults. His name was unconscious of his love, and was ever the same frank infidel being he had first known. She always seemed to be part from him with reluctance, but it was because she was no longer any one with whom she could visit her favourite haunts. Whilst her garden was occupied in sketching or uncovering some fragment which had yet escaped the destructive hand of time, she appealed to her parents on the subject of vampires, and they both, with so verbal present, affirmed his innocent pale with horror by the same name. Soon after, Veldry determined to proceed upon one of his excursions, which would detain him for a few hours. When they heard the name of the place, they all at once begged of him not to return at night, as he might necessarily pass through a wood where no Greek would ever remain. After they had closed upon any consideration, they had described it as the result of the vampires in eternal orgies, announced the most e- heavy evils that are pending upon him who did dare to cross their path, or we made light of their representations and tried to laugh them out. The idea which he saw them shudder at his daring last to mock a superior infernal power, a very name of which apparently made their blood freeze. He was silent. Next morning, Audrey set upon his excursion unattended. He was surprised to observe the melancholy face of his host, and was concerned to find his own words mocking the belief of those horrible fiends inspired them with much such terror. He was about to depart if he came to the side of his horse, and earnestly begged of him to return. Here a night allowed the power of those beings to be put in action. He promised. He was, however, so occupied in research, he did not perceive that daylight would soon end, and that in the horizon there was one of those specks which the warmer climates so rapidly gather in a tremendous mass and pour all their rage upon the devoted country. He at last, however, mounted his horse, determined to make up by speed of his delay, but he was too late. Twilight in those southern climates, it is almost unknown immediately the sun sets. Night begins, and here he had advanced far, and a powder storm was above. His echoing thunders had scarcely internal rest. His thick, heavy rain forced it away through the canopying foliage, whilst the blue fault of lightning seemed to fall and radiate his very feet. Suddenly his horse took fright. He was carried and dreadfully rapidly through the entangled forest. The animal at last, through fatigue, stopped. He found by the glare of lightning that he was in the neighbourhood of a hovel that hardly lifted itself up from the mass of dead leaves and brushwood which surrounded it. Dismounting, he approached, hoping to find someone to guide him to the town, or at least trusting to obtain shelter from the pelting of the storm. As he approached the thunders, for a moment silent, allow, allowed him to hear the dreadful shrieks of a woman mingling the stifled, suited mockery of a laugh. Continued in one way, 
one almost unbroken sound. He was startled by rows, by the thunder which rolled upon over his head. He, with a sudden effort, forced open the door of the hut. He found himself in utter darkness. A sound, however, guided him. He was apparently unperceived for. Though he called still, the sounds continued, and no notice was taken of him. He found himself in contact with someone whom he immediately seized, with a voice cried, again baffled, which he laughed as he did. He felt himself grappled by someone whose strength seemed supernatural, determined to sell his life as dearly as he could. He struggled, but he was vain. He lifted to his feet and held with enormous force against the ground. His enemy threw himself upon him, and leaning upon his breast, placed his hands upon his throat. When the glare of the many torches penetrating for the hole, again light and day disturbed him, he instantly rose, and leaving his prey, brushed from the door. In a moment, the crushing of branches that he broke through the wood was no longer heard. The stone was now still, and all being incapable of moving was soon heard by those without. He entered the light of their torches, fell upon the mud walls, a thatch loaded with every individual's straw, with heavy flakes of soot. At the desire of Aubrey, they searched for her, who had attracted him by her cries. He was again left in darkness, but what was his that? But what was his horror? When light the torches once more burst upon him, perceived that every form of his fairly conductress brought in a lifeless corpse. He shut his eyes, hoping it was but a vision arising from his disturbing imagination. He again saw the same form. When he enclosed them, stretched by his side, there was no colour upon her cheek, not even upon her lip, yet those was a stillness upon her face, that seemed almost as attracting as a life that once dwelt there. On her neck and breast were blood, was blood. Upon her throat were the marks of teeth, having opened the vein. To this the man pointed, then pointed, crying simultaneously, struck with horror, a vampire, a vampire. A litter was quickly formed, Nobody's lay to the side of her, who had lately been to him the object of so many bright and very visions, now fallen with the flower of life, and had died within her. He knew not what his faults were, his mind was benumbed, and seemed to shun reflection, and take refuge in vacancy. He held almost unconsciously his hand a naked dagger, a particular construction, which had been found in the hut. They soon met by very different parties, who soon who had been engaged in the search of her whom her mother had missed. Their lament cries as they approached the city forewarned, apparently as some dreadful catastrophe. To describe their grief would be impossible, but when they asserted the cause of their child's death, they looked over and pointed to the corpse. They were inconsolable. Both died broken-hearted. Aubrey, being put to bed, was seized with a most violent fever, but soon was often delirious. In those intervals, he would call upon Lord Raffarin, and upon Liberate. By some uncannable combination, he found seemed to beg of his former companion to spare the being he loved, as sometimes he would increase in Persate maledictions upon his head and curse him as a destroyer. Lothrathvin chanced at his time to arrive at Athens, and from whatever motive, 
upon hearing of the state of Aubrey, immediately placed himself in the same house, and came his constant attendant. When the latter recovered from his delirium, he was horrified and startled by the sight of him whose image he had now combined with that of a vampire, of a Lord Raphael, by his kind words applying almost reverence for the fault that caused their separation, was still more by the tension, anxiety and care he showed, some soon counselled him to his presence. His lordship seemed quite changed, no longer appeared the apathetic being who was astonished over him. But soon as his convalescence began to be rapid, he again gradually retired in the same state of mind. Aubrey perceived no difference from the former man, except that at times his eyes and meet his gaze, fixed intently upon him, with a smile of malicious exhaustion, playing upon his lips, he knew not why, but his smile haunted him. During the last stage of the invalid's recovery, Lord Rutherford, was apparently engaged in watching the tireless waves, raised by the cooling breeze or mar- the markings of progress, those all circling like our world, and moveless move sun. Indeed, he appeared to wish to avoid the eyes of all. Always mind by his shock was much weakened. That was excellency of the spirit, which had once so diminished him, now seemed to have fled forever. He was now as much a lover of solitude and silence as Lord Raphael, but much as he wished for solitude, his mind could not find it in the neighbourhood of Athens. He thought it missed the ruins he had fully rented. Neferin's form stood by his side. If he had sought it in the woods, a light step would appear wandering amidst the underwood in quest of the modest violet, when suddenly turning around would show at his wild imagination a pale face and wounded throat, with a meek smile upon her lips. He determined to fly his scenes, each, every feature of which created such bitter associations in his mind. He opposed to Lord Raphael, to whom he held himself abound by tender care he taken of him during his illness. They should visit these parts of Greece, neither had yet seen. They travelled in every direction, Insult every spot of which a recreation could be attached, but though they thus hastened from place to place, yet they seemed not to heed what they had gazed upon. They heard much of robbers, but they gradually began to sight those reports, which they imagined were only the invention of individuals whose interest it was to sight the generosity those who had defended from pretended dangers. In consequence of thus directing the advice of the inhabitants, on one occasion they travelled with only a few guards, more to serve as guides than as defence. Upon entering, however, a narrow defile, at the bottom of which the bed of torrent, with large masses of rock brought down from the neighbouring premises, they resolved to repent their neglection, for scarcely were the whole of the party engaged the narrow pass, when they were startled by the whistling of bullets close to their heads, by the echoing report of several guns, and instantly the guards had left them, and placing themselves behind rocks, began to fire in the direction whence the report came. Lord Raphael and Valdry, imitating their example, retired from them behind the sheltering turn of the bow, 
but ashamed of being thus detained by a bow who suddenly shouts bade him advance and being exposed to an resisting slaughter if any of the robbers should climb above and take them in the rear that determined at once to rush forward in the search of the enemy hardly had they lost the shelter of the rock when lord referee received a shot in the shoulder which had brought him to the ground Ogre hastened to his sisters, and no longer heeding the contest of his own peril, was soon surprised to see the robber's face around him. His guards, having upon Lord Rutherford's being wounded, immediately threw up their arms and surrendered. By the promises of great reward, Ogre soon induced them to convey his wounded friend to the neighbouring cabin. They were agreed, having agreed upon the ransom, he was no more disturbed by their presence. They, being content, merely to guard their interests, still their comrade should, still, till their comrade should return the promised sum, for which he had an order. Lord Referee's strength rapidly decreased. In two days, mortification ensued. A death seemed advancing with hasty steps. His conduct and appearance had not changed. He seemed as unconscious pain he had been of the objects around him. But towards the close of the last evening, his mind became apparently uneasy. His eyes upon, often fixed upon, Aubrey, who was reduced to offer his assistance with more than usual urgency. Assist me, you may save me. You may, may do more than that. I mean not to my life. I heed the death of my assistance, as little as that the passing day. You may save my honour, your friend's honour. How, tell me, how I could be doing anything replied Aubrey. I need not little, my life ebbs and buys. I cannot explain the whole, if I could steal all you know of me. My honour were free from stain in the world's mouth. And if my death were unknown for some time in England, I but life shall not be known. Swear, cried the dying man, raising himself exultant with violence. Swear by all your soul reverses, reveres, by all your nature's fears. Swear that for a year and a day, you will not impart your knowledge of my crimes or death to any living being in any way, whatever may happen, or may whoever, whatever you may see. His eyes seem busting from this first evil their sockets. I swear, said Aubrey, he sank laughing upon his pillow, and breathed no more. <clears throat> Aubrey retired to rest, but did not sleep. The many circumstances attending his acquaintance with this man rose upon his mind. He knew not why, but he remembered his oaths of cold shrivelling came to him, as if he if for the presentment of something horrible awaiting him. Rising early in the morning, he was about to enter the hovel, which he had left the corpse when a robber met him, and informed him that he was no longer there, having been conveyed by himself and comrades upon his tiring principle of the neighbouring mount. According to a promise they had given his lordship, he would be not should he be exposed to the first cold ray of the moon arose above his bed of his death. Aubrey, astonished, and taking several of the men, determined to go and bury it upon the same spot where it lay. But when he had mounted to the summit, he found no trace of either the corpse or the clothes which the robbers swore they pointed out an identical rock which they laid the body. By the time his mind was bewildered, in conjectures, but he was last returned, convinced that they had buried the corpse for the sake of the clothes. Weary of the country in which he met with such terrible misfortunes, in which 
all we have apparently conspired to heighten the suspicious melancholy that he sees upon his mind. He resolved to leave it and soon arrived in Samaria. While waiting for a vessel to occupy him to an old Torrento or to Naples, he occupied himself in arranging those effects he had with him belonging to Ref- Lord Rathlin. Among other things, there was a case containing several weapons of offence, more or less adapted to desire the entire to ensure the death of the victim. There were several daggers and attacks. Whilst turning them over and examining their curious forms, yet he was surprised at finding a shelf chief apparently oriented the same style as the dagger discovered in the fatal hut. He shuddered, hastening to gain further proof. He found the weapon in his horror may be imagined when he discovered that he fitted through though peculiarly shaped the sheath he held in his hand. His eyes seemed to need no further certainty. Yet seemed gazing to be bound to the dagger. Yet still he wished to be, to disbelieve the particular form, the same varying tints upon the heart. The sheath was alike. He spent on both, left no room to doubt. They were also drugged of blood on each. He left Samaria on his way at Rome. His first inquiries were concerning the lady who had attempted to snatch the Lord Vesperin's seductive arms. Arts. Her parents were in distress, their fortune ruined. She had been not heard of since his departure lordship, where his mind became almost broken under so many repeated horrors. He was afraid that this lady fall a victim destroyer of everything. He became morose and silent. His only occupation consisted in urging the knee speed of their positions, as if he were going to save the life of someone he had held dear. He arrived at Calis, a breeze which seemed obedient. His will soon muffled him to the English shores. He hastened to the mansion of his father's. There was for a moment appeared to lose Embraces the caresses of his sister, all memory of the past, its she before her infantine caresses had gained his affection. Now the woman began to appear, she was still attracting as a companion. Mrs. Aubrey had not the winning grace which gains the gaze applause of the drawing room assemblies. It was none of that light brilliancy which only exists in the heated atmosphere of a crowded apartment. Her blue eye was never lit up by the levity of the mind beneath. There was a melancholy charm about it, which did not seem to rise from misfortune, but from some feeling within that appeared to indicate the soul conscious of a brightening realm. A step was not the light footing which phrase wears a butterfly or colour may attract it. It was sedate and pensive. When alone her face has never brightened by the smile of joy, but when her brother breathes to her his affection, and would in her presence forget those griefs she soon she knew destroyed his rest, whom would have estranged a smile for that of a voluntary? See, did those eyes, face were playing in the light of their own native spear. She was yet only eighteen, had not even had not been presented to the world, if having been thought by her guardians more fit and her presentation should be delayed upon her father brother's return on the continent. He might be her protector. It was now, therefore, resolved that the next drawing room 
as fast approaching should be approached or entry into the busy scene, or we would rather have remained in the mansion of his father's and fed upon the melancholy which overpowered him. He could not feel interest from further issues of fashionable strangers, and his mind had been so torn by the events he had witnessed, but he was determined to sacrifice his own comfort, the protection of his sister. He soon arrived in town and prepared for the next day when he announced at a drawing room. The crowd was excessive. A drawing room had not been held for a long time. All who were anxious to bask in the smile of royalty hastened to them. Aubrey was there with his sister. While he was standing in a corner by himself, he lit of all that around him, engaged in a remembrance of the first time he had seen Lord Reverend was in that very place. He felt himself seized by the arm and the voice he recognised too well. Sounded in his ear, remember your oath? He had hardly cherished to turn, fearful of the scene as Vector had lost him, when he received a little distance the same figure that had, which had attracted his notice. At this spot, upon his first entry into society, he gazed still his limbs, almost refusing to bear their weight, he obliged to take the arm of the friend. And forcing the passage for the crowd, he threw himself into his carriage, and was driven home. He paced the room, which hurried steps, and fixed his hand upon his head. He is afraid of his thoughts were bustling from his brain. Love forever in again before him. Circumstances started to be up. Started up a dreadful array. A dagger, his oath. He'd aroused himself. He did not believe it. He promised. Puzzle. A dead phrase again. He thought his imagination had conjured up the image of his mind. Resisting upon it's impossible. It could it could be real. He determined therefore to go again into society through which he attempted to ask concerning Lord Raffarin. The name hung upon his lips. He could not succeed in gaining the information. He went a few nights after we, we after with his sister assembly of a near relation. Leaving her under the protection of a matron, he retired to recess and there gave himself up to his own devouring thoughts. Perceiving at last that many were leaving, he roused himself and entering another room, found his sister surrounded by several apparently in earnest conversation. He attempted to pass and get near her, and when one whom he requested to move turned around and revealed to him as features he must afford, he sprang forward, seized his sister's arm, and hurried steps forced her towards the street. At the door he found himself impeded by the crowds of servants who were waiting for their lords, and while he was engaged in passing them, he heard a whis- voice whisper close to him, Remember your oath! He did not dare to turn, a hurrying his sister, soon reached home. Aubrey soon almost became almost attracted, distracted. If before his mind had been dissolved by one other subject, much more more completely was it engrossed. Now that the certainty that the monster living again pressed upon his thoughts, his sister's attentions were now unneeded. It was in vain that she entreated him to explain to her. What had caused his abrupt conduct? He only uttered a few words. Those terrified her. A world more he thought, a more he was bewildered. His oath startled him. Was he then to allow his months at Rome, burying ruin upon his breath? Amongst all he held dear, and not avert it his progress? His very sister might have been touched by him. But even if he were to break his oath, to close his suspicions, who would believe him? He thought of employing his own hand to free the world from such a wretch, but death, he remembered, 
had been uh, had been already locked. For days he remained in this state, shut by his room. He saw no one, and only when his sister came, who, with eyes streaming with tears, besought him for his sake, the sake to support nature. At last, no longer capable of bearing stillness and solitude, he left his house, roamed from the street to street, anxious to fly that image which haunted him. His dress became neglected. He wandered at as often supposed the noonday sun as to the midnight damps. He was no longer to be recognised. He first he returned from the evening to the house, at last he lay down to rest without fatigue. Whatever fatigue overtook him. His sister, anxious for his safety, employed people to follow him, but he was soon distanced by him, who fled from the pursuer swifter than any their fault. His conduct, however, suddenly changed, stuck with the idea left from it by his actors, a hoys of his friends, with a fiend amongst them, of whose presence they were unconscious, determined to enter again in society, and watching closest, the anxious of forlorn, in spite of his woe, oh, oh, whom Lord Rathorin approached with embassy. But when he entered into the room, his haggard and suspicious looks were so striking, his inward shrugging so visible, that his sister was last obliged to beg him to abstain from seeking her stake, a society which affected him so strongly. When, however, remorse, remorse and state traits, stance, proved unavailing, unavailing, the guardians thought proper to impose, interpose, and fearing that his mind was coming alienated, they thought it high time to resume it again, a trust of which they had been before imposed upon them by Aubrey's parents. Delirious of saving him from the injuries and sufferings he had daily encountered in his wanderings, preventing him from exposing the general eye with their marks, of what they considered folly, they engaged a physician to reside in the house, and took constant care of him. He hardly appeared, appeared to notice it. So completely was his mind absorbed by one terrible subject. His incoherence became at so last so great he is confined to his chamber. There he could often lie for days incapable of being aroused. He became emancipated, his eyes attained a glassy lustre, and any sign of affection and recollection remained displayed itself upon the entry of his sister, whom he so, so, would sometimes start, and seizing her hand with, look, with locks, it severely affected her. He would desire her not to touch him. Oh, do not do, touch him. Who, if your love for me is aught, do not go near him. Whenever she inquired to whom he referred, his only answer was true, true, and again he sunk into a state whence not even she could arouse him. This lasted many months. Gradually, however, as a year was passing, his incurrences came less frequent. His mind threw off a portion of its gloom, whilst his guardian deserved that several times in the day you count upon his fingers a definite number, and then smile. The time had been had nearly elapsed. The when upon the last day of the year, one of the gardens entering his room began to converse with his physician upon melancholy circumstances. Always being in a so awful situation, his sister was going next day to be married. Instantly, over his attention was attracted. He asked, anxious to whom, glad his mark of returning and admit to it, of whom, of which they feared he had arrived. He mentioned the name of Earl of Benston, thinking this was a young Earl, 
whom he had met within society, obviously pleased and astonished them still more by expressing his intention to be present, the nuptials and desiring to see his sister. He answered not, but in a few minutes his sister was with him. He is apparently again capable of being affected by the influence of a lovely smile, for he pressed her to her breast and kissed her cheek, wet with tears, loving to the very force of her brother, being once more alive to the feelings of affection. He began to speak with his wanton mood to the congregation of Hon. Her congratulate her upon her marriage with a person so distinguished of a rank, and um, every accomplishment she suddenly perceived a locket upon her breast. Over it he was his surprise at beholding the features of the monster. He so long influenced his life. He seized the portrait of protagonism of rage and trampled it upon his floor under her foot. Upon her asking why, why he thus destroyed a resemblance of a future husband, he looked at her. He did not understand her. Then seizing her hands, gazing on her with a frantic depression, a countenance he bade her swear she never wed this monster, for he, he could not advance. It seemed as if the voice then bade him remember his oath. He suddenly turned suddenly round, thinking Lord Raffarin was near him, but saw no one. In the meantime, the guardians of this inn heard the whole of what this but return of his disorder entered divorcing him from his sorcery, desired her to leave him. He fell upon his knees to them, he implored, he begged to them to delay, but for one day they attributed this to the insanity, they imagined that taken possession of his mind, endeavoured to pacify him and retired. <coughs> Lord Raffarin had called in the morning after the drawing room, had been refused with every, with every one else. When he heard of Aubrey's ill health, he readily understood himself the cause of it. But when he learned he had been insane, his resolution a pleasure could hardly be concealed from those among him. He had gained his information. He hastened to the house of his former companion, a constant attendance and pretence of great affection for the brother, and interested his fate. He gradually warned the ear of Mrs. Aubrey. Who could resist his power? His tongue had dangers that told to account. Could speak himself or as of an individual having no sympathy with any being on the crowded earth, save with whom to her, save for her to whom he addressed himself. Could he, could tell now, since he knew her, existence had begun to seem worthy of preservation, if he were merely that he might listen to her smoothing accents. In fine, he knew him so well how to use a servant's art, on which the will of a fate he gained her affections. A title the elder branch falling at length to him, he attained an important embassy, and served as an excuse of hastening the marriage in spite of her brother's deranged state, which was to take place the very day before his departure for the continent. Obi then, when he was left by the physician, his guardians attempted to bribe the servants, but in vain. He asked for a pen and paper. It was given to him. He wrote a letter for his sister, to his sister, conjuring her as he valued her own happiness, her own honour, and the honour of those down the grave who once held her in their arms as their hope and the hope of their house to lay but for a few hours a marriage which he denounced amongst heavy curses. A servant's promised they would deliver it, but given it to the physician, he thought better not to harass 
any more than mine and Mrs. Albury, by what he considered the ravings of a maniac. Night passed on without rest to the busy inmates of the house, and Albury heard with horror, and many more easily he perceived and described the notes of busy preparation. Morning came and the sound of carriages broke upon his ear. Albury grew more almost frantic. Curiosity the servants at last overcame their vigilance. They gradually stole away, leaving him in custody of a helpless old woman. He seized the opportunity, and one bound was out of the room, and in a moment found himself in the apartment which all were nearly assembled. Lord Referim was the first to receive him. He immediately approached, and taking his arm by force, held him for the room, speechless of rage. When on the staircase, Lord Referim whispered in his ear, Remember youth and know, it is not your bride today, your sister is dishonoured. Women are frail, so saying, pushed towards his attendants, who roused by the old lady woman, had come to search him. Or he could no longer support himself. His rage was not vent, or finding vent, had broken a blood vessel. He conveyed to bed. But th- that this, not to mention to his sister, whom was not present, when he entered, as a physician was afraid of agitating her. A marriage was solemnized, a bride and bridegroom left for London. Baldry's weakness increased the fusion of blood, produced symptoms of near approach of death. He desired his sister's guardians might be called when the midnight hour had struck. He readily related composedly that the reader was pursued. He died immediately after. Guardians hasted to protect Miss Albury when they arrived. Too late, Lord Referin had disappeared, and Albury's sister had flirted, gutted the first of a vampire. Extraction of a letter containing an account of Lord Byron's residence of the, uh, in the land, island of Bullion. Account of Lord Byron's residence. His will was all before him. Were to choose in his place of rest and preference his guidance. He sailing through the Grecian archipelago on the board of His Majesty's vessel. In the year of 1812, we put in the harbour of Mephiling in the island of that name. The beauty of this place a certain supply of cattle and vegetables, always to be had, there induced many of British vessels to visit it, both men of war and merchantmen, whom it lies rather not to attract the ships bound to Syria. Its bounties apply repay the devation of the voyage. We landed, as usual, at the bottom of the bay, and whilst the men were employed in watering and pursuing, bargaining for cattle with the natives, Clergyman and myself took a ramble, a cave called Homer's School, and other places where we had been before. On the brow of Mount Ida, a small modicule so named, we met and engaged a young Greek as our guide who told us we had come from Circo with an English lord who left the island four days previous to our arrival in the through Lucia. He engaged me as a pilot, said the Greek, who would have taken me have would have taken me with him, but I did not choose to quit Melody. Where I was likely to get married, he was an odd but a very good man. The cottage over the hill facing the river belongs to him. He has left an old man in charge of it. He gives Dolomic, a wine trader, 600 Indians, about L250 English currency, and was only there for about 13 months, though not constantly, for he sells his, his food. Lilia very often to the different islands. 
His account excited our curiosity very much. We lost that time in hastening to the house where the, our countrymen resided. We were kindly received by an old man who conducted us over the mansion. It consisted of four apartments on the ground floor, an entrance hall, a dining room, a sitting parlour, and a bedroom with a spacious closet, closet annexed. There, simply decorated, decorated, plain green stained walls, marble tables on either side, as large myrtle in the centre, a small mountain fountain beneath, which could be made to play with the branches by moving a spring fixed inside a small bronze Venus. In a leaning posture, a large couch of the sofa completed of furniture. In the half hall stood a half a dozen English cane chairs, an empty bookcase. There were no mirrors, no single painting. The bay chambers merely sink large mattress spread on the floor, two stuffed cotton quilts, and a pillow. A common bed throughout Greece. In the sitting room reserved a marble oasis, formerly the old man told us, filled with books and papers, which were in the state large seaman's chest closet. It was open. We did not think ourselves justified in examining the contents. On a tablet the recess lay Vedatars, Shakespeare, Balulu's Rasatu's works complete, Balulu's ruins and empires settlement, in Greek language Covenant's Messiah, Kodabut's novels, Juker's play of the robbers, Milton's Paradise Ross, an Italian edition printed in Parma in 1810, several more pamphlets from the Greek press out of Constantinople, much torn, but no English book of any description. Most of these books were filled with marginal notes, written with a pencil in Italian and Latin. Messiah was literally scribbled all over them, and marked with sips of paper, of which also were marks. The old man said, the Lord has been reading these things. Even before he sailed, I forgot to place them with the others. But, said he, they must lie until we return. For he's so peculiar that where I move one thing without orders, he, he would frown upon me for a week together. It is other ways very good. I once had him, did him a service. I produced, I had the produce of his farm for the trouble, take care of it. Set twenty zoins with a pay and an aged Armenian resides in a small cottage in the wood, whom the Lord brought here from an Amazonian oak. I don't know for what reason the appearance of the house of Terry was pleasing. Apollo Tilico was in front, was fifty paces along, and fourteen broad, and the fluted marble pillars, the black plinths, and weight fretwork cottages as if new now customary in Grecian architecture were considerably higher than the roof. The roof, surrounded by a light stone balustrade, was covered by a fine coloured carpet beneath an awning of strong coarse linen. Most of the house tops are thus finished, as upon the Greeks pass their evenings in smoking, drinking light wines of Liston the Christini, eating fruit and enjoying the evening breeze. On the left hand, as we entered the house, a small steamer glided over grapes, oranges and limes, clustered together its borders under the shade of two large myrtle bushes. A marble seat with an ornamental wooden back was placed, on which we were told the Lord passed many of his evenings and nights till twelve o'clock, reading, writing and talking to himself. I suppose, said the old man, praying, 
where he was very devout, and always attended a church twice a week besides Sunday. The view of his seat was what may be termed a bird's eye view, a line of which Vimelides yards led the eye of Mount Calculia, covered with olive and myrtle trees in bloom, on the summit of which an ancient Greek temple applied its majestic cave. A small stream issuing from the ruins descended a broken cascades, tilted lost in the woods near the mountain base. A sea smooth as glass and horizon over unshadowed by the single cloud terminates the view in front, a little on the left, through a visa of lofty chestnut and palm trees, several small islands were distinctly observed, shuddering the light blue wave with spots of emerald green. I seldom enjoyed a hobby more than I did this, but were encouraged with fruitless to name the person who had resided in romantic solitude. None knew his name but Dominic, his banker, and who gone to Comedia. The Amelian who, said our contractor, could well be, I'm sure he will not. I cannot tell you, old friend, said I. If I can, said he, I dare not. He had no time to visit the Armenian. But on our return to the town, we learnt several curious of the isolated lord. He proportioned eight young women, girls, when he was last known upon the island. He even danced with them at a nuptial feast. Nuptial feast. He gave a cow to one man, horses to others, and cotton and could see it with the girls who lived by weaving these articles. He also brought a new boat for fishermen who lost his own girl. And often gave Greek testaments to the poor children. In short, he appeared to us, from all we collected, to have been a very eccentric, malevolent character. One sentence we learnt, which our friend at the cottage thought proper not to disclose, had a most beautiful daughter, whom the Lord was often seen walking on the seashore. He had brought her a penio forte and taught her himself the use of it. Such was the information for which we departed from the beautiful island, peaceful island of Mid- Mid-Ulane. Our imaginations of all, all the rack, guessing who this rambling Greece should be. be. If money, it was reverent. The polyphery disposition and all those eccentricities which mark peculiar readiness arrived at Palomaro with all doubts were dispelled. Finally, in a company with Mr. Foster, the architect of pupils of Watts, who had been travelling in Egypt and Greece, the individual, said he, about whom you are anxious, is Lord Byron. I met him in my travels on the island of Tendos. I also visited him at Medellin. He never had heard of his daughter's fame, as he had been some years from home, but Clive Holy Howley, being put into our hands, we recognised him close of Caloria. In every page, deeply not did we regret not having been more curious researches at the cottage, where we consoled ourselves with the idea of returning to Metaphorfile on a future days. But to me that day would never return. I make this statement, believing I do not quite not quite understanding justice his lordship's good name, which had been grossly slandered. He had been described as an unfeeling deprivation. Averse to associating with home in Venetia, or contributing in any way to smooth its sorrows, 
I had its pleasures. In fact, it's directly the reverse. I mean, and many of you plainly gathered from all these little anecdotes. All the finer feelings of the heart so elegantly depicted. Lordship Poem seemed to this, have a seat in his bosom. Tenderness, sympathy, and charity appeared to guide all his actions. His courting and imposts a solitude of additional reason for marking him as a being of whose heart religion have set her seal, over whose head benevolence have thrown her mantle. No one can read and reading pleasing dates without feeling pride of him as countrymen. With respect to his loves for prejudice, I do not assume a right to give an opinion. Reports have been ever received with caution, particularly when directed against man's, man's own integrity, and he dares justify himself above that awful tribunal where all, where, where almost, all must appear below my sense of the efforts of a fellow mortal. Nor Byron's character, nor his genius, to do good is a secret, and shun the world's applause, is the surest testimony of various heart and self-approving conscience. The end.